We are in the second to last chapter of 2 Samuel. Um, there's another psalm that's included. It's the last uh, psalm that David writes. You can look at that on your own. But we're going to take a look at David's mighty men, starting in verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshab Bashabeth, a Tachimonite. He was the chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800, whom he killed at one time. That's pretty good. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they def- uh, defied the Philistines, who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung, some translations say, froze to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, Shammah, Shammah the son of Aji, the Harahite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the uh, men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, where a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried, carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. He said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now, Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruah, was the chief of the 30, and he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down... An Egyptian, and here's my favorite part, a handsome man. The Egyptian was a really handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name besides the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three, And David set him over his bodyguard. And then the rest of the passage, the 30 men are named. And I will let you pronounce those on your own. 
Okay. Now, what are we to do with this passage about David's mighty men? Well, Paul writes this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, it's profitable, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So um, I don't think we're just to say that's interesting and move on. I think there's some kind of an application to us. And I would say this, they are to be examples to us. Just as they were radically loyal to David and they were willing to risk it all for David, I think we should say, I want to be like them in my loyalty and my radical love for Jesus. Realizing that the way we serve Jesus is going to be a little different than the way they served David. Okay, so put your spears away. Um, But as we read about these mighty men, and as we see their bravery and their valor, and they're willing to risk it all for Jesus, I'm going to ask you, can I see a show of hands for, for how many people would say, yeah, I want to be like that toward Jesus? Okay, all right, good. So here's what we want to do. Three, uh, three questions that every potential mighty man for Jesus should ask, okay? Question number one is this. Am I a soldier or a civilian? Am I a soldier or a civilian? The Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Timothy 2. Share in the sufferings, in suffering, as a good soldier for Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So he's telling Timothy, when you signed up to follow Christ, in essence, it's like being enlisted in the army. Okay? And now, Timothy was a, uh, a minister, there's a degree to which all of us have joined Christ's army. There's a, a degree to which we are all set apart to serve our commander and chief, Jesus. So the question is this Do you see following Christ that way? Or are you just a civilian? Are you a civilian or a soldier? Do you even see yourself in the war? That question actually should affect everything. How we spend our time, what we do with our money, the intensity with which we live. Now, do any of you remember back in the day when they had a draft? And um, there there was a way you could get out of the army, if you were a rich senator's son, um, but they would examine you, go, go for your physical, and if you didn't pass the physical, you were stamped what? 4F, right? 4F, a military draftee, is a military draftee rejected for being physically unfit. So, let's do this. Can I give us a little... 4F 
test, a little examination to see how fit we are um, to be in Christ's army. Now, um, I am going to focus mainly on the men, okay? But ladies, come along for the ride, all right? So here's, here's four F's to examine your fitness. One, family. Is my marriage and is my family glorifying to God? In 1 Timothy, Paul says, here's the qualifications for being an elder in a church. He says, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now you say, well, I'm not interested in being an elder. Well, there's two offices that the Apostle Paul mentions in this chapter. There's the elder. Elder, actually, elder is a synonym for a pastor and an overseer. Okay? Those are those who oversee the church. But then there are deacons. And deacon simply means servant. And uh, a, a deacon would be somebody who is given a specific responsibility, but it didn't include teaching. All right? Um, we would say our ministry team leaders are deacons or deaconesses. There's a big controversy over the word gune. Does it mean a deaconess or does it mean the wife of an elder or a wife of a deacon? Um, I believe it. it, it I, I believe that only men are to be elders, but women can be deacons, uh, deaconesses. Okay, but that's not the point. The point is to be a a male deacon, here's a qualification. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Same qualification. Your family needs to be in order. So sometimes guys say, I want to do amazing things for Jesus. All right, first assignment How's your family? Are you, are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Are you bringing up your children in an orderly way, in a way to love the Lord? The, the principle here is the one found in the parable of the talents, where the men bring back the talents that the Lord gave them, and those who have doubled the investment Here's what the Lord says. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. So our families are little laboratories of how we will manage bigger responsibilities for the kingdom. So, um, you know, dads, we need to view our families as top priorities. Some, some guys view fatherhood kind of like a hobby. If I have time, if it's fun, I'm in. If not, my wife has it. It can't be a part-time thing. Now, notice not only... Do we have the children mentioned? But here's this phrase, husband of one wife. And you go, finally, I, I've qualified. 
I've only got one wife. Well, most translators would say that that should be translated a one-woman man. And what that means is you don't have a wandering eye. You are loving and loyal to and devoted to your one wife. Okay? And do I need to mention it again? But there are many people who say, I want to do mighty things for Jesus. But they're enslaved to pornography. And I know that's, that's a, a, a tough battle. Right? But can we boil it down to a binary choice? Do you want to be a mighty man for Jesus or do you want to live in that world? Okay. Notice it uses the term household. All right? Household. The, the household, um, it's not just your family and it's not just your house. Most households were little businesses. I mean, you had a farm. You had animals. You had a garden. You had servants. So in essence, what this is saying is, how do you run your affairs? Okay? I think a, a, a fair question to ask today is this. Are you being fiscally, financially responsible? Okay, We all have the same task. We have a certain amount of income that comes in, and we have expenses that take away. The responsible person looks at that equation and spends less than comes in. And with that extra, you give a percentage to the Lord, And you save for the future. So you don't have to be dependent on the state. Right? So all these things are part of your first assignment, soldiers. How's your household? Is it in order? Now, you say, well, you don't know my situation. You don't know my kids. You don't know my job. You don't know, you don't know, you don't know. And um, the second F, evaluation, is the word fault. What I mean here is quit blaming everybody else. Are you man enough to take responsibility for your own issues, your own family? Mighty men stop making excuses and they take responsibility. Now, we have a good example of, of our, one of our forefathers who was a great excuse maker. His name was Adam. When God said, hey, did you eat from the tree? What was his response? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. <laughs> you notice not only is he blaming Eve, He's blaming God because you gave her to me. In your sovereign plan, Lord, you could have picked someone else. There was, she was the only one there, but um, he's blaming others. By the way, Eve did give him the apple. But who does God hold responsible? In Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through 
one man. There's headship going on right there. Okay? Um, in our text, we read about Eliezer, son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. So everybody abandons him, and it's just him. Does he blame them? I was left here by everybody else, and it's their fault. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. He didn't blame anybody. He took responsibility. Um, there's, a, there's a book that I picked up. It's on leadership called Extreme Ownership. How U.S. Navy SEALs lead and win. And it's a, uh, by two Navy SEALs who were trained by the SEALs, and now they're business consultants. Um, but the first chapter is called Extreme Ownership, and that means quit blaming everybody else. And um, they write this. In virtually every case, the SEAL troops and platoons that didn't perform well had leaders who blamed everyone and everything else. Their troops, their subordinate leaders... Or the scenario. They blamed the SEAL training instructor staff. They blamed inadequate equipment or the experience level of their men. They refused to accept responsibility. Poor performance and mission failure were the results. The best performing SEAL units had leaders who accepted responsibility for everything, every mistake, every failure or short, shortfall. Those leaders would own it. During the debrief after a training mission, these good SEAL leaders took ownership of failures, sought guidance on how to improve, and figured out a way to overcome challenges on the next iteration. The best leaders checked their egos, accepted blame, sought out constructive criticism, and took detailed notes for improvement. They exhibited extreme ownership. Okay? Now... Um, so, what do you need to own? Does, does that mean that you don't have maybe troubled kids or troubled situation at work? No. But what do, you, what, what do you own? Some people are master blamers. They can just blame their life away. And they feel good because it's not their fault. Right? Now, um, you say, all right. I'm going to go home and get my family in order. Line up. Right? Remember the sound of music? The, uh, when before the nun came, the captain had his children march, and he blew, blew the whistle, and they all had their little signals, right? Um, so some guys hear this, and they go, I'm going to take ownership, and we're going we're gonna to get that family in order. All right? So now let's take a look at the next one, fruit. You can't run your family like Mike Ditka. Right? Families are delicate, complex things made up of delicate, complex people. And each one needs a complex mixture. Each person in your family needs a complex mixture of grace and discipline, which is why 
I mean, I'm all for go to the, the family seminars and learn how to run your family. But a lot of people, they take notes and they think it's a blueprint that can be just imposed. And they go, well, I tried it and it didn't work. It takes a little more finesse than that. In fact, you know what it takes? The fruit of the Spirit. It takes love and patience and kindness and gentleness and sometimes discipline. But there's a, a skill involved. So you go, all right, I want to be a soldier. I've got to get my family in line, but I can't Mike Ditka it. Uh, so really, my first step is to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. How do I do that? Well, Jesus said this, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Your first step is to make sure you're connected to the vine. Your, your first step, in fact, we're studying the fruit of the Spirit on Wednesday night. Jerry Bridges says this, Christian character flows out of devotion to God. Right? Your first step is not to buy a manual on how to get your family in order. The first step is to cling to the vine and have him produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Right? Let me give you a, a, a fourth F, four F, fundamentals. Now, um, when that word comes up, people go, oh, are you a fundamentalist? <laughs> well, there's, there's a word that has evolved over time. It originally meant the fundamentals were the, the core basics of the Christian, uh, Orthodox Christian faith, and when Christian liberalism was rising... The fundamentalists were the ones who said, no, we're going to take a stand for the inerrancy of Scripture and the deity of Christ and the virgin birth and the miracles of Christ. We're not going to compromise on the fundamentals. And then those people became known as the fundamentalists. But now that term has kind of evolved into becoming a divisive term that describes a person who's always negative and dividing and fighting. They have no sense of priority. Everything's worth nitpicking over so you can judge people. Right? So, am I a fundamentalist? Well, if you mean a narrow-minded person who has no perspective, I hope not. Maybe I am, but I hope not. If you mean, though, do I hold to the fundamentals of the faith, yes. Now, it's interesting because sometimes, uh, again, we'll have people who will come to this church and um, they'll say, oh yeah, I've been in church all my life, I'm ready to go. And um, they'll be here for a few Sundays and they'll go, I've never heard anything like this stuff you preach about on the sovereignty of God. Like today, just one of our readings was Romans 8, that you were predestined. And if you're predestined, you're going to be called and you're going to be justified. And then you'll be glorified. And I get people who say, I've never heard anything. Sometimes they're offended. I've never heard anything so ridiculous as predestination. And they, they want to say, I've been swimming in the deep end of the pool. 
they've been in the shallow end for, for quite some time. Not, now I'm not saying that, that understanding the five points of Calvinism is what makes you mature, because there are people who understand the five points of Calvinism, and they're very immature. In fact, they, it's just a pride issue for them. But, but what, I'm, what I'm getting at is this. There are some guys who know everything about sports. They know the terminology, a cover two defense, and they're going to blitz, and there's a play option. Uh, uh, you know, they know all the terminology, but when it comes to knowing the Word of God, they don't know it. And then there are those who study the Word of God not to submit to it, but to use it as a sword, and it is, it is a sword, but they use it for personal gain to beat everybody with it. Right? So, fundamentals. Are you grounded in the fundamentals of the faith? So those are the four F's. You, you say, I want to be a soldier. I want to be a mighty man for Jesus how are you doing with the basic physical? Right? Now, let me, let me go quicker here. Second major question is this. How far am I willing to go to please my Lord? And we've, we've already read twice the three mighty men who heard David say, oh, that someone would give me water from the Bethlehem well. And they fight and they risk their lives and they bring the water back to David. And, and the question is, what would motivate them? Again, it's not duty. It's not fear. Because it wasn't even really a command. It was a wish. It had to be love. If your obedience to Christ is just based on duty or tradition or fear, it's not radical enough to be a mighty man. Now, again, somebody might say, isn't this just for the upper elite? No, this is the basics. Jesus said this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We're to have that same kind of radical love for Christ that we're willing to die for him. You know, as I um, was thinking about this, I, I thought, what, what might be a good example to encourage us? So um, I listened to, uh, I have a book on tape. And it was funny because Adam and Alyssa came over the other day and they said, hey, we just listened to a book on tape. And I said, so what book did you listen to? And they said, we were listening to Eric Metaxas's Seven Great Men. I go, I just listened to Eric Metaxas's Seven Great Men. And I said, what chapter did you listen to? And they said, the one on Eric Little or Lydell, I guess is what. And I go, I just listened to this. Isn't that weird that of all the billion books out there and then on books on tape and then you listen to the same chapter and this, you know what I think it means? Absolutely nothing. Right? Okay. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. But if you see an owl fly by your car today, watch out. Right. So Eric Lydell was a Scottish Olympian. All right? 
He was going to run in the 1924 Olympics. His race was the 100 meter. All right. um, and if you saw the, the movie Chariots of Fire, he finds out that the race is scheduled on a Sunday. He is a Presbyterian. I am married to a Presbyterian. She's not here. <laughs> That's what you get. <laughs> She's very sick. Um, with she has no voice, right? So if you don't have a voice, why come to church, right? Um, so he's a Sabbatarian. Now I have a little different theology, but the point is not that. The point is he believes that Sunday is not for running, even if you are in the Olympics. So the whole world's trying to convince him to run. And you know what he does? He goes to church on Sunday while the others are running the race. And he basically forfeits a gold medal because he was expected to win. Now, um, the, the rest of the story is later in that week, he does run another race, the 400 meter, that he wasn't, that wasn't his best race. And as the masseuse is giving him a massage, he slips him a piece of paper before the race, and it's 1 Samuel 2.30, those who honor me I will honor. In other words, there was at least one other person on the planet who was supporting him. And he went out, and he not only won the gold, but he set a new Olympic record, 47.6. Is that a good time for the 400? In dirt with really bad non-Nike shoes, right? Yeah, so Ashley is a uh, all-American runner, and when um, when uh, we first hired her, um, she, we we saw that she was all-American in track, and uh, I told my wife, "This girl's an all-American," and Elizabeth said, "That's great. I love patriotic people." <laughs> Now, the thing about Eric Lydell, the, the, the point is, he was so loyal to his Lord that he was willing to forsake what the rest of the world would die for, a gold medal, to walk in obedience to the Lord. Right? It would be like, what if, what, if, uh, what if today you turned on the TV and you heard Tom Brady became a Christian this week. Maybe he is, I don't know. Do Christians deflate their footballs? I don't know, all right? So. <laughs> Faith without works, all right? You know, football's without air, um, whatever. But what if you heard that Tom Brady became a Christian and a Presbyterian and he said, sorry, I'm going to the Sunday night service. I mean, that, that's kind of the, the level that this is about. But the movie was all about that. The, the real story of Eric Little is this. After he wins the medals, he becomes a missionary to China. And this is right when World, World War II is starting up. And Japan attacks China, and he's put into a prison camp 
from 1943 to 1945 where he dies. It was revealed, and by the way, he's married. And there's a tumultuous time, and most of the time his wife and kids are back in, in Canada. Um, so he, to be on the mission field, he's sacrificing family time. And he's in this prison camp, and it was revealed after he died that he turned down an opportunity to leave the camp as part of a prisoner exchange program, and he gave that opportunity to a pregnant woman to take his place. And the only explanation is this guy was loyal to his Lord. Right? So the question here, how, how far am I willing to go to please my Lord? Last thing, what risks am I willing to take to advance the kingdom as... Uh, David pours out the water. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Right? These, these men were willing to risk their lives. How about this guy? Benaiah went down and, went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. Now, what's the significance of the snow? Well, it's slippery. Not, not the best opportunity to fight a lion. And then... He chooses to go down in the pit. He sees the lion down there. This, this is crazy risky. How do you explain it? Well, you know, I, I, I introduced you guys to the de Krager family. De Kruger, de Krager family. Um, they were here before Christmas. and The dad dies. They're missionaries in Togo where it's 130 degrees, the Muslim area, medical facility. Dad dies, and she chooses to stay on and raise these four boys in Togo. And you go, is that wise? And, and her answer would be, I have no doubt it's what God wants me to do. Now, I'm not saying go out and do stupid things for Jesus. Okay? I am saying walk so closely with the Lord that as you're obeying him, some of the choices you make may look stupid to the rest of the world. Right? Remember the parable of the talents? You better. I tell it every Sunday. Right? But the... Uh, the man who had nothing to show was asked, why did you bury your talent? He said, oh, I was afraid. And I don't endorse the message, but this is from the message. The master was furious. That's a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. Take the thousand and give it to the one who risked the most and get rid of this play it safe who won't go out on a limb throw him out into the utter darkness. What risks? What have you taken? What risks have you taken? Not stupid risks in your own life, but stupid risks that would look stupid in the eyes of the world because you are radically following and loving Jesus. You say, but what if it's dangerous? And again, we'll close with an example, not of a, not of a mighty man, but a mighty woman. Esther. 
who took a risk. She went into the king's throne room without being summoned. You could be killed. And as she's weighing out her options, she says, I'm going to do it. And if I perish, I perish. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for these men of valor, men of courage. May they inspire us to be loyal to you and radical to you, even to the point where the world says, that's crazy. And may you receive all the glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.